Good morning, everybody. Great to be with you. Uh, if I haven't met you yet, my name is Brian. I'm one of the pastors here. It's so good to uh, be gathered together with you. Glad you're here with us as we uh, journey together towards Jesus. Let me invite you to grab your Bibles and open to Exodus 31. Exodus 31. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the pew back in front of you. You're welcome to follow along there. If you don't own a Bible, uh, if you don't have one at home, uh, you're welcome to take that one home with you. That's our gift to you. We would love for you to have a copy of the scriptures. We think everybody should have a copy, and so we would love love for you to take that one home. We'll be glad to replace it. And so um, if you just didn't bring yours, you can borrow and uh, uh, follow along as we uh, move around today. Uh, Before we jump in, I want to give a huge thank you to Pam. She did a fabulous job last week. So thank you so much for uh, jumping in, uh, taking us through the Ten Commandments and how that ties to the gospel. uh, When I asked her to step into that uh, message, I told her it was a little little intimidating to take the law and tie it to the gospel, but she did a fabulous job with that. So I was really uh, grateful to her. Um, Our intention was to be uh, in Ohio wrapping up some details with uh, my dad's house and some other things. Uh, instead, we got to be quarantined, so that was lovely, and, uh, but we're, we're back and everybody's whole now, so uh, we're, we're good. So anyway, uh, great to be uh, back with you. Um, before we jump in, I, I want to remind you of a couple kind of interpretive keys through the book of Exodus. So there's three different statements that we come back to all the time, over and over again, as we've been journeying through this series, Building the People of God. Uh, the, the first one is this, that this story is our story. So it's really easy to read this story in terms of history, a historical people, uh, God doing a historical work, and, and all that's true, that happened. Uh, but it's easy for us to detach from that and forget that God's given us this story because this is the work that he does in us, in every generation, in every person uh, in his church. This, is, this story is our story. And so it's given to us not just so that we would know what God did in Israel, but so that we can see what God is in the process of doing in us. So this story is our story. The second key that we've talked about is that God is making all things new, not making all new things. And that's an important distinction because the restoration process of making all things new, it may take days or weeks or months or years or decades. It's a process that God has uh, walked us in through uh, the nation of Israel. You uh, probably know the end of the story or the end of this part of the story. It took 40 years for God to do his formational work and they still weren't fully formed, it turns out. They still weren't ready to go. Um, So it's a process and it's important for us to get that because many of us want God to make all new things. We want it to be done, but it doesn't work that way. God, over a long period of time, is forming us and shaping us. And that leads to the third interpretive key that we've talked about, which is that God is not just interested in our freedom, but he's interested in our formation. So God came and saved the nation of Israel from Egypt. They were in slavery in Egypt, and God had saved them. But that wasn't the end of the story. He saved them, freed them, in order to begin to form them and shape them. And that same thing's true for us. This story is our story. God doesn't just save us from our sin, but he begins this process of formation, of shaping, of uh, of forming us into his image. And in the same way that God, uh, when he frees Israel, is making them into a nation, making them into a, a people that are shaped like him. He does the same thing with us. 
He's shaping us into a people. And so we're going to dive into formation today. Uh, before we look at the scripture, I just want to acknowledge the fact that we've jumped 10 chapters. So if you've been following along, we've been kind of going through little by little. We got to uh, midway through Exodus 20 last week, and now we're jumping to Exodus 31. Uh, there's a lot of really good stuff between the end, or the middle of Exodus 20 and Exodus 31. But um, if we were going to dig through, for, at some point in time, I'm going to get it really brave, and we're going to do a series on the law. We're going to do like uh, the law here and the law later in Exodus and all of Leviticus, and uh, that'll really thin out the church, which will be great. Um, ju- just kidding. No, it's it really, there's great things in there, but um, I, I was talking to uh, Taylor Sharp, our uh, stu- student ministry leader, and uh, when I was talking to her earlier, she said, yeah, if you went through all of that, we'd be doing this as long as the Israelites were wandering, 40 years. So it would be, it'd be a process, right? And so, uh, so we're going to jump over that, not because there's not great things there. I'll reference back to some of that, um, but we're going to jump into Exodus 31 and uh, specifically into the idea of formation. How does God, through the law and through his work through the law, shape and form his people? And so you're going to find Exodus 31 has two kind of distinct movements in it. So listen to the word of God, both uh, in the way that he describes what's happening and the way that he calls his people to obedience. And so Bill's going to come and read for us uh, Exodus chapter 31. First, uh, something that popped into my mind and my heart as we as a body were rejoicing to Ashley's lead today and the team's lead uh, about the day of Pentecost. Uh, We had some discussion at home about Pentecost, and I'm so glad that Ashley reminded us all that it's Pentecost today as well. Um, But this popped into my head because we were all just so into it, I think, today. How good and pleasant it is when brothers and sisters, God's people, live together in unity. It's like oil being poured on the head, flowing down on the beard, flowing down on Aaron's beard, down upon the collars of his robes. It's as if the dew of Mount Hermon were falling upon Mount Zion. For it's there that God bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. Amen. Amen. That's Psalm 133, if, if uh, you want to refer to it. Now to the scripture for today, Exodus chapter 31. The Lord said to Moses, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, in cutting stones for setting, and in carving wood, to work in every craft. And behold, I have appointed with him Oholiab, the son of Ahisamach, of the tribe of Dan. And I have given to all able men ability that they may make all that I have commanded you, the tent of meeting and the ark of the testimony and the mercy seat that is on it and all the furnishings of the tent, 
the table and its utensils, and the pure lampstand with all its, its utensils, and the altar of incense, and the altar of burnt offering with all its utensils, and the basin and its stand, and the finely worked garments, the holy garments for Aaron the priest, and the garments of his sons for their service as priests, and the anointing oil, and the fragrant incense for the holy place. According to all that I have commanded you, they shall do. And the Lord said to Moses, you are to speak to the people of Israel and say, above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths, for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. You shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall be put to death. Therefore, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. And he gave to Moses when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. Thank you, Bill. Would you pray with me? Jesus, as we come to your word, we recognize that your word is truth. And we recognize that you have given it to us that we would be shaped and formed, that we would be changed. And so God, save us from just knowing more and instead help us to be shaped, to be formed into your image, that we would be, as we sang, vessels that can be filled with your spirit, to bear your spirit to the world around us. And so, God, would you guard my words that they would come from you alone, that the words that come from my flesh and my own strength would fall to the ground and be forgotten, but the words that come from your spirit would remain. May they penetrate our hearts, and may we be changed. And so speak, Lord, your servants are listening. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We're going to jump into uh, Exodus 31 in just a moment, but I want to set a little bit up in terms of formation, because formation for us is a bit of a challenge. There's a couple reasons for that, and so I want to just kind of walk through two specific reasons why formation is difficult for us. The first one is this. Formation takes a long time. So for us to be formed, it's really tricky because we live in a microwave generation. You know, like we, we want things to like beep, 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 be done, right? You like you want, it, microwave popcorn is this amazing thing because it like you, it has a kernel and then you put it in and you go to life for like two minutes or three minutes or whatever it is and it comes out and it's like transformed into buttery goodness, right? Like how did that, ha how did that happen? I don't know. We want our lives to be like that, right? We want to like go to sleep on the Bible 
and osmosis, wake up in the morning and we're, we got it, right? And we, we, don't, we don't really believe that. Like we, we know it doesn't work that way. But we kind of think it does or think it should because we have this sense of like, I've, I've been following Jesus for a long time, like two weeks. Like what's the problem? Like what? You know what I mean? Like it's like, like we, wanted, we, we want this, this thing to be in us and we're just not patient because we don't have the long view. And the law in a fascinating way speaks to that. So uh, as you read through the law, what you're going to find that God is telling the Israelites is um, here's a daily routine and here's a weekly routine. And here's a monthly and seasonal and annual routine. And over the years, year after year, as you celebrate and as you remember, there's this process of formation that is clearly not intended to be done in a day or two, right? It's, it's not intended to be done in the short term. This is a long process that we are uh, submitting ourselves to, that we're, we're centering our, ourselves into. And, and the big challenge that we have is that um, because we aren't prepared for that, we tend to get frustrated with it. And we tend to set aside formation because we're not changing as much as we should. But um, if you look back a week or two, you may find that you haven't changed as much as you think you should. But if you look back several months or several years or a decade or more, what you're going to find is your life looks dramatically different if you're pursuing after Jesus than it did. And that transformation, that's the long work of formation that God's doing in us. So that's one of the problems that we have. It takes longer than we think it should. But I would argue the bigger problem for us in 21st century American spiritual formation is that um, everything in our life forms us. Now that's not necessarily bad, but uh, our perspective on it can be really tricky. So literally everything that we do is formational to our spirit. And yet we spend so much of our time focused on spiritual things. Uh, For instance, when we talk about formation, we talk about things like prayer and Bible reading and coming to church and being involved in community and uh, exercising a variety of different disciplines. And listen, all of those things are really good, uh, really, really vital. But let's, let's be honest, if, you, if you're really doing great, like you really have a, a powerful day in the Lord, what is the spiritual chunk of your day? Is it maybe 5%? 8%? Probably not 10%. Like, that'd be quite a day, right? If, if two hours and 40 minutes of your day were spent in spiritual activity. Like, so much more of our life is spent in the midst of the mundane, of the changing diapers and mowing lawns and grocery shopping and doing work, like uh, the work that you get paid for for 40 or 50 or 60 or 70 hours a week or whatever that is for you. Uh, and the work you don't get paid for. So, uh, like, we have four kids, uh, so Amanda uh, raises four kids. Like, that's, that's her work. And so people will say to me, oh, so she doesn't work. Like, that's because you've never raised kids. You don't know. <laughs> like, yes, she works really hard. It's just uh, she doesn't get paid for it, sadly. I'd love for her to get paid for that, but it's the way it is, you know? Um, so all of us are like that. We have work that we get paid for, and we have work that we don't get paid for. So whether it's volunteering to coach, or it's uh, being part of a community board, or uh, it's being uh, connected to your neighbors, or uh, helping with a project, or whatever, those are all work things that happen. And, and all of that stuff forms us. And, and the law is really interesting as it relates to all of the stuff. Because if you start to read through the book of Leviticus, what you're going to find is that there's a law for everything, and sometimes disturbingly so, 
right? Like there's, there's law, like if you happen to find fungus growing on your foot, there's a law for that. If you happen to find mold in your kitchen, there's a law for that. If you want to know, I know a lot of you are really wondering about this, if you want to know what liquid is appropriate to boil a young goat in, you can find that in the law. Like, some of you are like, really? I really, I wanted, this afternoon, right? Like, all this stuff is in there, and and I've intentionally kept it PG-13. There's some other stuff in there that is uh, less appropriate. Uh, Some of the teenagers are like, I'm going to read Leviticus tonight. Yes, you should. It's fabulous. You'll find out some really interesting things. Uh, So all this stuff is is in there. Why? Uh, Why does God have a law about athlete's foot? Like, I, I, I mean, I get that that he knows about it, right? Like, he understands. It's clearly part of the fall, but he understands. Like, but why does he have a law about it? I think the answer is pretty simple. And it's simply that everything matters to God. Like, we might say it this way. Everything is spiritual. Now, the, the problem is, we tend to think in terms of spiritual and not spiritual. But what I was, I was fascinated to find this week Uh, There's no Hebrew word or even concept for the word spiritual. They didn't have that word. Like, they have the word holy. Kadosh is the word holy, and there's all kinds of holy things, set aside things. But there's no word for spiritual. Now, in the New Testament, Paul does use the word spiritual. He uses it in a slightly different way than we often do. We'll talk about that in a bit. But um, Paul said, for instance, uh, in the book of 1 Corinthians, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it to the glory of God. So he clearly wasn't segmenting life between spiritual and not spiritual. There's a, there's a fullness of the way that God works in us that's in totality. And what gets in the way of our spiritual formation is that we spend all of our time focusing on the spiritual things without recognizing that maybe 95 or 97 or 98% of our life is spent doing what we might call ordinary things, mundane things normal things. And that's where Exodus 31 comes in. Because what Exodus 31 is going to give us is a whole new paradigm for seeing those kinds of things. So I want to just look at the two different movements of Exodus 31. The first one is work that is spirit-filled, and the second one is rest that is spirit-directed. So we have spirit-filled work and spirit-directed rest. So let me just read again for you these first three verses that start off uh, Exodus chapter 31. The Lord says to Moses, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, from the tribe, of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship. Now we're going we're to pause there because what you may not know is that here in Exodus chapter 31, this is the very first time in the entire Bible that any person is spoken of as being filled with the Spirit of God. Abraham was never filled with the Spirit of God, at least recorded for us. The the sons of Abraham were not filled with the Spirit of God. Moses, up until this point, has not been filled with the Spirit of God. Being filled with the Spirit of God for the very first time in the Bible is left to some dude named Bezalel. Anybody surprised by that? Because I was like... Beza who? Like, what are we talking about here? Like, uh, the, the Spirit of God fills a guy named Bezalel in order for him to work, to build and design and do stuff. And what it says is, 
He's filled him with the Spirit of God. This is verse 3. With, there, there's four things that he fills him with. With ability, intelligence, knowledge, and all craftsmanship. Now, we're going to have to do a bit of a deep dive into Hebrew for a second. I promise there will be a point, and um, I'm not a Hebrew scholar, so my pronunciation may not be perfect. But I, I want you to see those four different things that are given to Bezalel and what they mean for us. So stick with me here for a minute. Uh, the, the first word that is uh, translated ability in the ESV, it literally means wisdom. The word is chokmah. Can you say chokmah? So, so there's that thing that happens in Hebrew, the thing, sorry about that. Um, uh, that. That thing falls between the K and the M. So when you say it, if you're able to do that thing, you want to say chokmah. Right? So you say it again, but watch out for the person in front of you. Okay? So one more time. Yeah. Okay. Whatever. Okay. So uh, chokmah, uh, literally, so it literally translates wisdom. So uh, God has given to him, Bezalel, filling with his spirit, chokmah. He has wisdom that he's given to him. The second thing that he's given to him is tobuna. Can you say tobuna? I think it's actually tobuna, but I'm not sure exactly how to say it, so I, th I think that's closer to right. Uh, it's translated intelligence, literally means understanding, so it's fuller than just knowledge, it's kind of the, the, the way things are put together. So tobuna, uh, tobuna, there we go. Uh, so he has hokma and tobuna, and now the third one is da'at. Can you say da'at? Da'at, yeah, that's a, that's a fun word to say, I like that one, da'at. Um, that literally uh, means knowledge. So he's been given hokma. Tobuna and Da'at. And then the final thing is a, it's a, a compound word. So it's translated in here, um, all craftsmanship. But it's, it's, it's actually two words. So the word for all and then the word for um, artistic design or craftsmanship is, com, com, I'm going to get that one right. I thought I had it. Komelika. Can you say Komelika? Yeah, I don't, that may be wrong. I don't know. Something close to that. Um, and it's basically the combination of those things. Now, why is that important other than it's fun to like, you know, spit words as we're trying to say Hebrew words? Like, what are, what, are we, what are we trying to say here? Well, I want you to stick your finger in Exodus 31 and turn towards the middle of your Bible to the book of Proverbs. So we're going to get to Proverbs chapter 3. So I want you to remember, Bezalel, first person in the Bible filled with the Spirit of God, is filled with the Spirit of God and giving, given those four things. Those four words in Hebrew. Now we're going to read uh, Proverbs 3, 19 and 20. This is Solomon talking about the creation and the creative work of God in creation. So he says this in verse 19. The Lord, by wisdom, founded the earth. By understanding, he established the heavens. By his knowledge, the deeps broke open and the clouds dropped down the dew. Now, if you were reading that in Hebrew... He would have said, the Lord, by chokmah, founded the earth, by tobuna, he established the heavens, and by da'at, the deeps broke open. So he's used those exact three things to say the first three things that he gave Bezalel are the exact same three things that God used, the power that God used to create all that is. Now, you're still missing one, right? So um, go now all the way back to the very beginning, to Genesis chapter 2. We're going to be there uh, for a minute anyway. So go all the way back to the beginning, Genesis chapter 2. Let me read for you verse 3. It says this, So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it 
God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. And that phrase, all his work, you could probably guess by now, is the compound word that is komelika. So now what we see is, through the scriptures, the same four words that are given to Bezalel are the same, exact same activities that God has done when he's created the entire world. So what we've just heard in, in Exodus chapter 31 is that the very first person filled with the Spirit of God in the entire Bible is a dude named Bezalel who was given the same characteristics and power that God used to create the entire universe. Is anybody surprised by that? Because I'm kind of surprised by that. Like that was not where I was thinking this was going. And yet here's this guy who seems to be just a random dude and he's empowered by the Spirit to do all of this incredible work that literally mirrors creation. I don't think the Hebrews would have been as shocked as we, we were, would be with it, as I was, as I studied it. And that's because, remember I said at the very beginning when we started Exodus, Exodus is really the second volume of a five-volume series. So um, the first five books of the Bible together are meant to be uh, kind of read and understood together. And often, Exodus references back to Genesis. And so ancient Hebrews who were reading the scroll of Exodus would have been in their mind reading it in light of the book of Genesis. And in Genesis, there's this fascinating thing that, um, that gets a little fuzzy for us in English, but let me read for you. If you just go forward just a little bit to Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, it says this, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. That word dominion literally means rule. And, and what, what this says is God has created humanity, men and women, us, so that we would rule over all of the stuff of the, the earth and we would do that in his place, in his image. God has made us in his image in order to, as a representative of God, rule over all of the stuff of the earth. So, so we have to get in our minds this idea that Adam and Eve weren't just like chilling in the garden, right? They weren't just like hanging out, playing cornhole, having a drink or whatever, just like waiting for God to show up. Like they, they were put there. Uh, the Hebrew is really specific. It, it says literally in order to, they were created in order to rule. Like the entire purpose of which God created man and woman, humanity, is that we would work, that we would rule over all of these different things of the world. There's a whole theology behind that that at some point in time we're going to do a little deeper dive into, but for today, all I want you to see is that God's created us in order to work. And if you just jump down two verses to verse 28, it says this, and God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion, that's the same word again, over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So um, when he restates it, he restates it to, in a way that makes us clear in understanding work is not just given to us as a responsibility, it's a blessing. God blessed them and said, you should rule over these things. You should, uh, you should take dominion over them. You should exercise authority over them in the place of God. So when Bezalel is given the spirit and the characteristics of God himself at creation are given to Bezalel, 
it wouldn't have been so shocking to them because they would have said, of course, that's what we're made for. We're made not to do spiritual things, but to do all things, including all of our work, in, uh, in reflection of uh, mimicking God himself. Why is that important? Well, it's important because for the vast majority of us, 40, 50, 60, 80, 120 hours a week are spent doing paid and unpaid mundane work that for us doesn't feel spiritual, but for God seems to be the very purpose for which he gave the Spirit. Like, does it shock you that the first person filled with the Spirit did not preach a sermon, did not lead worship, did not pray healing over anybody? The first person gifted with the Spirit, filled with the Spirit, designed and built stuff. Like, that was, that was Bezalel. He, he was specifically gifted by the Spirit to design and build. God calls us not to uh, take our vocations and make them spiritual. He calls us to be empowered by the Spirit to do the stuff that he's called us to do, whatever that stuff is. And so whether you're an engineer or a teacher or a bus driver or a contractor or a stay-at-home mom or a landscape artist or whatever it is that you do, you're called, empowered by the Spirit, to do that thing as God ruling over the, the world around us, exercising dominion in place of God. Now, I recognize that by the time we get to Genesis chapter 3, we're going to find out that work is cursed, and there's some stuff that goes with that, and we will dig into that at some point in the future. Uh, that's not for today. What I want you to hear for today is that your life is not segmented between the stuff of God and not the stuff of God. Your life is holistically his, and you're empowered by the Spirit, not just to do spiritual stuff. So, for instance, Maybe you work in a cubicle farm somewhere. You know, you have all these cubicles all around, and uh, you're trying to figure out, how do I glorify God in my work? So I'm here in my little cubicle. Um, I know I could have a Bible study among all of my cubicle friends, and I can be ready to pray for people uh, that are beside me in my cubicle uh, so that I can uh, pray blessing on them. And to that, I would say, wonderful. If that's what God's called you to do, that's great. But that's not what Bezalel did. Bezalel used the gift of the Spirit to do his work really well. Let me say it a different way. How do we work like God in the world around us? Well, God created in six days all that is. So I think it's fair to say God was hardworking and productive, right? Like I've had some really productive six-day periods. I've never done anything that compares with creating the universe from nothing. I don't know. Maybe some of you have had really productive six-day periods, but probably you didn't quite get there, right? So God is, is hardworking and productive, and so if we're going to rule in his image, we would be hardworking and productive people. God is joyful and eager in his work. And so if we're going to be in the image of God, ruling, we would not be people who show up late, kind of dragging along, and when there's a difficult project, we'd like hope somebody else volunteers for it because we don't really want anything to be done, right? Like, we'd be people who would jump into stuff. God does everything with honesty and purity and righteousness. So we would be workers that are full of integrity. 
So let's go back and use our example again. Say you're the cubicle farm worker who uh, has a Bible study and is regularly praying for everybody, but also is pretty lazy and shows up to work late and doesn't really like to do the hard projects and doesn't have a lot of integrity in the work that they do. Are you reflecting the image of God just by a Bible study or just by prayer? No, your spiritual activities may reflect God, but the 95% totally misses. Let's say it the other way. I, maybe for some of you, when I uh, talked about like, oh, you could have a Bible study and pray for your neighbor, you were like, oh my goodness, that's the very last thing I'd do in the whole world. Like, are you kidding me? Like, I'm terrified of that whole idea. And y- for you, like you're never starting a Bible study, you may never go to one, and you're certainly not gonna pray for somebody, but you're trying to work up enough courage, like maybe once this year you could pray for somebody. Let's say you're that person. Like once this year, you're hoping to pray for somebody because it's just, that's, that's a big jump for you. And you're really hardworking, and you show up to work eager, you're ready to jump into stuff, you're productive and helpful, and you're always doing your work with honesty and integrity. Does that reflect the glory of God? Absolutely. For so many of us, we have segmented life in such a way that devalues the majority of the stuff that we're called to do. And I think God in Exodus 31 is saying really, really clearly, he is just as concerned with the mundane stuff of life as he is with the spiritual stuff. Because for him, everything's spiritual. It's, it's all, so whether you're called to be an engineer or a teacher or a bus driver or a contractor or whatever the thing is that you're called to do, called to do that to the glory of God. Some of you know the name Dorothy Sayers. Uh, Dorothy Sayers was a writer and uh, critiquer at oftentimes of the church in the mid-20th century, a British lady uh, who wrote some really provocative stuff. Uh, In an essay that she wrote called Why Work, she was uh, asking the question, what's it look like for us to work to the glory of God? The same idea that we're talking about. And and, uh, the the term that she used, let me look at it to make sure I get it right, is to serve the work. She she said, what we need to do is serve the work. And so what she meant by that is not Uh, segment stuff so that we do spiritual things along with our work, but we do whatever we're called to, to the glory of God. So we become the best stay-at-home mom that we can be, or the best engineer that we can be, or the best bus driver that we can be, or whatever the thing is, we do that thing to the glory of God. So the way that she said it, I I love this quote, she says this, the church's approach to an intelligent carpenter is usually confined to exhorting him not to be drunk and disorderly in his leisure hours and to come to church on Sunday. What the church should be telling him is this, that the very first demand his religion makes upon him is that he should make good tables. We should just do what we do as well as we can to the glory of God. So the good news I have for you is that whatever it is that you're called into, the Spirit of God is given to empower you to do that work with excellence. You don't have to become somebody different. You have to receive the empowerment of the Spirit to do the creative work that God began at creation as invited us into. There's a lot more to it. Um, I would love to do a deeper dive into vocation, but we don't have time this morning. I I do want you to see the transition because there's uh, almost like a a whiplash kind of transition that happens as he talks about the Spirit given to Bezalel and the work that he's called to do. And then in verse 13, it says this, And the Lord said to Moses, You are to speak to the people of Israel and say, Above all, 
you shall keep my Sabbath. Now remember, this is at the end of 11 chapters of law that have just been given. And it says, above all that stuff, you're to keep my Sabbaths. For this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. You shall keep the Sabbath because it's holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. I don't know how you read your Bible. Um, If you read your Bible like most people and just kind of read straight through, you would just read through that and not really just like, okay, that's what God says. But if you read your Bible interactively, like you're talking to God along the way, this would be an appropriate time to be like, okay, okay, and everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. That would be an appropriate time to say to God, what? Like, are you serious? Like, are you having a bad day? Like, what in the world is going on here? Isn't that a little over the top? Like, you failed to practice the Sabbath, so death penalty for you. Like, what? Like, what's happening here? Like, why is God so over the top with the Sabbath? Well, to answer that question, I want to jump back to a short paragraph in Exodus 30. So um, uh, let me just give you a framework uh, so you can get to Exodus 30. You may have to flip a page or not. But in Exodus 30 comes at the end of five chapters on the tabernacle. So starting in chapter 25, all the way through Exodus 30, it's all about the tabernacle. It's like how to make the Ark of the Covenant and how to uh, make the lampstands and how to set up the tabernacle itself and how to make the altar and the bronze basin and uh, the way that the priests should be set aside and the clothes that they should wear and the things that they should do and all this stuff. And it goes all the way through. Uh, at the beginning of Exodus 30, it talks about a different kind of altar, an incense altar that they're to make. And then uh, there's this, this paragraph that we're about to read. And then it goes on to talk about the bronze basin that's for washing and uh, about the way to make the incense. So it's all about the temple, except for, starting in verse 11, the Lord said to Moses, when you take the census of the people of Israel, then each shall give a ransom for his life to the Lord when you number them, that there should be no plague among them when you number them. Each one who is numbered in the census shall give this, half a shekel, According to the shekel of the sanctuary, the shekel is 20 geras, half a shekel as an offering to the Lord. Everyone who is numbered in the census from 20 years old and upward shall give the Lord's offering. The rich shall not give more, the poor shall not give less than half a shekel. And when you give the Lord's offering to, when, when you give the Lord's offering to make an atonement for your lives, you shall take the atonement money from the people of Israel, give it to the service of the tent of meeting, that it may bring the people of Israel to remembrance before the Lord, so as to make atonement for your lives. Okay, so that, that probably sounded like a bunch of garbled stuff right this minute. Let me try to explain to you what's going on here. He's talking about census, which is very odd because he's been talking about the tabernacle all the way through. And all of a sudden he shifts gears and he starts to talk about when you take a census. Now, if you know the history of Israel all the way through the Old Testament, taking a census is dangerous business. Like um, uh, 2 Samuel 24, David takes a census and gets in all kinds of trouble for taking a census. Um, There's often uh, kind of a weightiness that goes with taking a census. What I want you to see is God did not say, which he's in the middle of the law right now, so it would be appropriate time for him to say, when you take a census, never mind, don't do that. You're not allowed to take a census. He could have said that, but he didn't say that. What he said is, when you take a census, there's a way that you can atone for, ransom, your lives because censuses were taken for two primary reasons. One reason would be for taxation and the other reason would be for going to war, for establishing uh, how big your army is. What God is saying is when you take that census, you could very easily be tempted 
to believe that you're good enough. You could very easily be tempted to think we're powerful on our own. We've counted our army and we can handle the army that's coming. We've counted the people and when they give their taxes, we're going to be rich. We got all that we need. We are self-sufficient. And so what he said is, every time you take a census, every single person needs to give a half a shekel coin. Now, half a shekel coin would be the equivalent for us of a penny. It would be a, a very small amount of money that literally everybody had. So if I said to you, before you leave today, I need everybody to just drop a penny in this little bucket up here, it would be a bigger deal to find a penny than it would be to give a penny, right? Like, most of you are like, yeah, I threw those away a long time ago. Like, I don't care. Like, you kidding me? I have pennies. Stop it. Um, So what he's saying is, this is not a sacrifice for anybody. This is not a sacrifice. What he's saying is, every time you take a census, I want you to take this coin out, I want you to drop it in the pot, and I want you to remember... That's literally what he says, uh, that it may bring the people of Israel to remembrance. I want you to remember that I'm your strength. I'm sufficient. Your, Your identity is not in how many people you have in your army. Your identity is not in how much taxes are coming in. Your identity is in me alone. Take the penny out, drop it in, and remember. Now, why is that important? Let's go back to Sabbath. What's the problem with work? Well, it's blessed. It's good. God has created work in a really good way. Now, some of you may say, not my work. Well, I think there's, you know, whatever. There's, there's, yeah, there, there are ways that it can be good. That you have to maybe work towards that. But work is created as good. What's the problem with work? The problem with work is it makes a terrible God. Work, like the census, can become very quickly a way that we identify ourselves, the way that we provide for ourselves, the way that we establish security and blessing and status. The very God who says, I have put my spirit into, I've filled Bezalel with my spirit in order to do work, says, and be really careful because you could very quickly be identified by this. You could very quickly get to a place where you believe that this is all about you. So rather than taking a penny and dropping it in the pot, every six days take a 24-hour period. And on the seventh day, remember, remember that I'm your strength. I'm your identity. The challenge with work for many of us is that we've so segmented it from our spiritual life, that concept that the Hebrews didn't have, that we become identified by it And when we get to Sabbath, we forget what we're supposed to do. Um, Listen to the way that John Durham, in his uh, commentary on Exodus, talks about the remembering of the Sabbath. He says this, Disregard the Sabbath, either by neglect or by a violation of the strictures concerning it, is disregard for Yahweh, and disregard for Yahweh is disregard for the reason and possibility of Israel's existence as a people. What he was saying is, if you fail to remember the Sabbath in the proper way that God has called you to remember the Sabbath, what happens is not that you failed to do a ceremonial exercise. You failed to take that 24-hour period. What happens is you forget why you were made. You forget what your identity actually is. You forget who God has made you to be. Which is why God said, practice the Sabbath or you'll be put to death. 
because your very identity is bound up in me. And once you forget that, you've forgotten who you are. A penny dropped into the pot reminds us that God is sufficient. A 24-hour period every seven days is a reminder that God is in charge. And for the other six days, we should be reminded by Bezalel that we're empowered by the Spirit to do the stuff that he's called us to do. Not just to pray and read the Bible and be in community, all of which is really important and you should do that, but all of the other 95% of your life. Empowered by God, but not identified by. Identified by God alone. We're going to take the next four weeks and we're going to do a little bit deeper dive into Sabbath as a practice. Uh, I figure if God had the death penalty associated with it, it's probably worth four weeks, right, to, to study into that. So we're going to dig into that a bit over the next four weeks. But for today, I just want to leave you with a couple things. One, whatever work you're called to, whether it's paid work or not paid work, whether it is, feels like mundane work or whether it feels like really important work, the Spirit of God has empowered you to do it and it is not who you are. Both of those things have to be held together. God calls us to Sabbath so that we would remember him. And God calls us back to the remembrance, the regular remembrance that we're identified by him alone. And I think that's a beautiful picture for us as we come to the communion meal. Because, you know, we, if you haven't been around church for a long time, uh, we call it a communion meal. And uh, maybe the first time that you showed up at the station, you were like, this is the meal. Y'all don't eat very much, <laughs> right? Like, it, it's literally like a little cracker. It's like a little thing. And it's a little cup of grape juice. Like, if you come thirsty, you're going to go away thirstier. I don't know how that works, but like, you're, you're not going to have your thirst quenched in a human sense. Why? Because this is the penny. This is just the remembrance. This is just that, that, that little thing that everybody can do. So uh, you, don't have to, uh, you don't have to make a big spread to come to the communion meal. You're just going to go eat a little piece of cracker and a little bit of juice, and you're going to remember. And remember that your life has been paid for, that atonement has been made, that the sins that you commit, they don't define you. But instead, you have the opportunity as a follower of Jesus to be defined by him alone. And so I'm going to invite you to come back and as you come back to the communion meal to remember in that simple and beautiful way that he's in charge. He's your identity. He's your sufficiency. And he's the one who forms and shapes us. Everyone who's a follower of Jesus is invited to come. And so uh, whether you're a regular part of this church or whether you're here for the first time today, if you've committed your life to him and you're following after him, I want to invite you to come and to receive this reminder uh, if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, a couple quick things I'd like to say to you. First of all, we're really glad that you're here. This is a good place for you to be as you process and try to figure it out. Um, there's going to be a couple prayers that'll be on the screen. And one of those prayers is going to say, I'll just summarize it. It's basically going to say, uh, God, show me more about you. Uh, help me to understand. Uh, and if that's where you're at, that's a great prayer to pray because God loves to answer that prayer. I, I would just encourage you to keep your eyes open this week if you pray that prayer. Ask him to show you, and he will. Um, the second one says, uh, God, I'm ready to follow you. Like, I don't know a lot, but at the basic level that I get, I know I need you. I'm ready to follow you. And if you pray that prayer, I would invite you to come to receive communion as well. Um, 
you don't have to use those words, but it would be the words that basically say, God, I'm, I'm ready to follow after you. But I, I, I want to not confuse you. That's not the end of the journey. That's the beginning of the journey. So to begin that process of being formed and shaped by him. So let us know that so we could walk alongside of you. But if you're not ready for that step today, for whatever reason, you're just trying to figure all these pieces out, I would ask you not to come to the communion stations. There'll be a bunch of them around the outside of the room. I would ask you not to go there. There's going to be a lot of movement, so you don't have to worry that people are going to look at you funny or whatever. Um, people aren't going to notice. But I would encourage you not to do that because this, uh, this simple meal, this, this little bit of cracker and this little bit of juice is a reminder of the sacrifice of Jesus that invites us into what the Bible calls covenant, a promise between us and God in the way that we're following him. And so if that's not where you are, I would just ask that you don't come to the communion table, but instead just kind of watch what's going on. The last thing I want to say is if you're, you are a follower of Jesus, but there's an area of your life that you've said, he can't have this. Like he can have all the other stuff, but he can't have this. And I, I, let me be really clear. I don't mean that you still sin because all of us are in that position. What I mean is that there's an area of your life that you've just shut off from God. And you've said, um, you, your, uh, your feedback is not welcome into this area. I'm going to do this myself. And if that's where you are, I would just simply ask that you don't go to one of these stations, but rather take some time to bring that before him. Because this is an opportunity that you have to come before God and say, I believe that you're good. I believe that you're Lord. I believe that you can do all things. Why don't I want to give you this? Like, what's, what's going on in my heart? And that's a really important question to ask that you have an opportunity to ask this morning. But I'm going to invite all who are followers of Jesus to come and to receive and to remember. So I'm going to ask uh, those who are serving if you would come and take the elements around the room and let me just give you a, a quick orientation to uh, what will happen. As uh, the worship team leads us, there'll be stations around the room and as you go to uh, any one of them, you can go to the one closest to you or furthest from you, it doesn't matter. Um, as you go, you'll just simply come up, you'll uh, hold your hands and a piece of bread will be dropped into your hands with a pair of tongs and words of blessing are going to be spoken over you. And then as you take that, you'll also take a little cup. Um, like I said, don't expect a big, long draft, just a little, little swallow. Um, you'll have a little cup of juice. And then as you kind of move past the station, you'll have an opportunity to eat and to drink and to remember. Uh, in the front pew of each of the main sections, there are uh, little baskets that you can drop your cups into. Uh, you can also hold on to them and throw them away in the lobby, whatever is best for you. Um, but you're welcome to utilize those and to, to discard those as you go. As you come, come remembering. Imagine uh, one of the pictures that kept going through my mind this week as I was studying was hundreds of thousands of Israelites, one after another, walking through the tabernacle and just dropping a coin into that little pot, whatever it was, dropping a penny. Like, I remember, I remember. I remember. That's us. We are going to go to these stations and we're going to receive this little representation and we're going to say together, Jesus, we remember. Remember that you've given yourself for us. We remember that we're identified by you. And so as you go, go remembering. Let me pray for us. Jesus, thank you for your love for us. Thank you that you have come to live the life that we couldn't live and to die the death that we all deserve to die in order to bring us back to you. And so Jesus, as we come, help us to remember once again the fact that we are identified by you alone, not by what we do, not by how well we do it, not by uh, how much we've amassed from what we do, but instead we're identified by you alone. 
And so, God, help us to come and to receive, to remember. Meet us by your Spirit, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.